The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Trudzaki, and welcome back. So, Jackie, what are we going to talk about today? I think we're going to talk about oil and some of the things that are going on there. But one of the big things about Canadian oil is that infamous pipeline, Trans Mountain Pipeline, otherwise known as TMX. What do you think? Well, yeah, so the TMX tolls came out. I think it's actually going to start, be ready to start by the end of the year and start mm-hmm. in the new year. But the tolls came out, they're interim tolls because it's only 80% complete. Mm-hmm. So as a reminder, this project was supposed to be a $7.4 billion, and now it looks like a $31 billion, and it may oh. even be more money. I'm not 100% sure, but assuming it sticks stays at $31 billion, the tolls are very high. I guess it isn't a surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're a committed shipper, and by the way, committed shippers made commitments back in 2012, and they didn't know the price of the tolls, but it's 8 U.S. about— if you're an uncommitted shipper, about 20% of the volume is not firm with okay. tolls. So let's, let's just uh, back up. Ten- so let's just back up for a second. We're talking about the cost to a shipper to take a barrel of oil from the Edmonton Hardesty area all the way to the terminal, which is in Burnaby. Yes, that's right. And so that eight- doesn't include the marine costs, which are even going to add additional costs. Right. right. So let's just call it 10 bucks. Like, what's a typical, if you wanted to get it from Edmonton to, say, the Gulf Coast of Texas? Well, it's probably not far off that, but you're going Mm -hmm. a lot further. Right. And the thing about this is, when we consider that the project has, you know, basically gone up more than threefold here. Four. four, Yeah, that's right. More Mm -hmm. than four times. uh, It's not surprising the tolls are higher, but these tolls are about double what I would have expected. And I'm sure what most shippers expected when they signed Mm -hmm. on to these in 2012. So it's disappointing in that... You're, not, you're going to be paying a lot more to get your crude to market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was viewed that you were going to be getting a premium price. I think this toll is taking most of right. that away. And, and, of course, because the project costs so much, it's, it's not going to provide a great return to uh, investors either. So, to me, it's an example of why we need to fix this regulatory system that right. we have, that yeah. projects take, well, over yeah. a decade yeah. to construct and have so much project scope creep that we end up in this situation. Yeah, there's, I mean, microscopic regulatory issues that just drove the cost of this thing through the roof. So let's um, let's get someone knowledgeable about that. But in the meantime, we still need to talk about oil. That's right. So we are delighted to have back special guest whose uh, last time we had him was in September of, what was it, 2019. We're absolutely delighted to have Eric Nuttall, he is partner and senior portfolio manager with Nine Point Partners LP in Toronto. Great to be with you again. I can't believe it's been four years. Yeah, lots has happened. We were just saying the price of oil was $58 when uh, you were on the podcast last time. Today, it's, it's right now around $67 at the time of recording, so up $10. But it's taken a lot of uh, zigs and zags since then, down to zero at one point up to over $100 mm-hmm. at another. So you've been on quite a roller coaster since we last talked to you. Yeah, but before you get going, Eric, I know, as I said, you don't need a lot of introduction as Uber investor in the Canadian oil and gas sector. But for those of us, for, or for those in the audience that are not familiar with you, why don't you just give us a thumbnail of who you are and uh, what you do and how you got there? You bet. No, I, I started my career in 2003 at uh, Sprata Asset Management. 
I was involved when we launched the Sprout Energy Fund in 2005. So that was kind of my my beginnings. We did a management buyout from Sprout in 2017 to become nine point partners. The fund itself remained in the same state. So I've been managing that since about 2010. So it's been a lot of uh, some highs, a lot of lows, uh, a lot of wisdom gained <laughs> throughout that time. So now um, assets sit at about $2 billion uh, split between the Nine Point Energy Fund and then an income fund that we run as well. So the Nine Point Energy Fund now, the last time I checked, was the third largest actively managed energy fund in the world. Mm-hmm. And our focus today is solely on Canadian oil and gas companies. Right, right. And uh, we, I mean, I think I've known you, Eric, since the early 2000s. And um, like, what got you focused on oil and gas equities in your background? Like, what is, you just... It was purely Naturally. by chance. Okay. Yeah, purely by chance. Uh, the person that hired me at Sprott, uh, Jean-François Tardif, was excited about natural gas um, at the time. I think we were two. We were soon to trade to seven or eight dollars, and so he wanted somebody to analyze natural gas companies, and that kind of gave me my end. And Eric, maybe not everyone knows, but someone just showed me the other day that I can track your Nine Point Energy Fund on my phone. So just a little <laughs> bit about how people can find the fund. Yeah, so we're listed on Neo Exchange. The main fund is NNRG, and then my income fund is NRGI. And so that's that's an easy way to gain access. I've got on my iPhone, and so when I'm on vacation or whatnot, I can you know, easily mm-hmm. see how I'm doing or, or not doing. Yeah, well. down two percent today. I see. Okay. Well, you're supposed to turn your phone <laughs> off on vacation. Eric. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, shall we get into it, Jackie? Yeah, for sure. Well, well, let's talk. I know you've been an oil bull for quite a while. And uh, of course, you've rode the upward swing that happened after the invasion of Ukraine. But now oil prices down quite a bit. And surprisingly, it did not move very much. In fact, it's down a little bit from before OPEC, actually Saudi, announced a 1 million barrel a day cut about a week ago. So are you still an oil bull? And, And maybe explain why you think that the price of oil didn't move much with this Saudi cut. I am. I am. And, and to be an oil bull, it's even rarer than being an energy fund manager. You've got Goldman Sachs uh, kind of supposedly throwing in the towel, cutting their price forecasts, etc. When I reflect on, okay, why am I bullish on oil? It really comes down to four main things. One is, I believe, demand, even current and medium and long term, will be uh, stronger for longer than most people believe. I just think the energy transition that we're supposedly on is going to take much, much longer than the average people believe. You know, it was common during COVID, people were talking about the new normal and peak demand and such. And I just don't think that's based in reality. But what makes me really bullish is on supply. You know, we've had to deal over my my career with the rise of U.S. shale, massive, massive destabilizing force. We very confidently believe the, the, the best days of shale are behind us. Growth rates are going to be a fraction of what they once were. We looked to OPEC. Uh, I got to visit with the energy minister in Riyadh in January of this year, which was just an incredible conversation. But going into that meeting and coming out, we believe that OPEC, when you adjust for short-term curtailments, were running out of productive capacity just due to that lack of, of ability to invest during very low oil prices. We feel very good about that now. And then lastly, the super majors due to you know ESG and divestments, uh, policy uncertainty from governments with windfall taxes, concerns about long-term demand growth, et cetera, just prevents them from being able to invest sufficiently as well. So it's, it's really the, the culmination of those four things. Mm-hmm. I reflect on the past year, and it really feels like it's been energy investors up against the U.S. president with the release of the SPR under the false pretense that we were going to lose 3 million barrels per day. So I think that's distorted the market's ability to see how tight things are when you adjust for that. Yes, we've had some disappointments such as you know, Russian production, 
Chinese demand not being as robust, but you know, is that weak demand or is it just our, our expectations were too high and you know, we still see record um, imports, record demand for the past several months, et cetera. And so I just think people were in this state where energy investors have been disappointed and they just don't want to be hurt again. And so they're going to have to see it to believe it. They're going to have to see inventory draws. They're going to have to see that follow through mm-hmm. on price before uh, sentiment can inflect. Because it's amazing. You can measure this in several different ways. But my, my own feeling is sentiment today is as bad as it was during the lows of COVID, which to me is astounding. Right, right. So actually, just as a side note for our audience, the SPR, which you referred to as the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that is the storage caverns that are drawn under certain circumstances, geopolitical or otherwise. And so the Biden administration did a release as a consequence of the high oil prices. And so I want to come back to that. But before we do that, let's go to the first conjecture, which I believe in, is that demand is going to be stronger for longer. However, in the near term, there's all these recessionary expectations and there's a very strong correlation between economic activity and oil consumption. You posted a podcast, which Jackie, I think we'll put in the, in, the, in the show notes. Can you believe in a recession and be bullish on oil at the same time? So maybe, first of all, give us the answer to the question. But do you view recessionary forces as short term and that you're talking about being bullish sort of longer term and whatever that longer term time horizon is? Is it a year? Is it two years? Or what are we talking about? Yeah. So the reason I did that podcast is that it was since June of last year, that's when, you know, the courtesy of the Federal Reserve, uh, sharpest hiking in history and, and really the concerns that, that will eventually trickle through to the U.S. and the European economy, maybe globally. And this concern about, you know, you're always fighting this boogeyman of what might be in the coming months and quarters. And we know this is the most talked about recession in history. And so I wanted to kind of phrase, well, let's just go there. Let's believe in the recession because every economist on the planet seems to. And then what does that mean for oil demand? And taking a step back, you know, we're a student of following oil inventories because there, there's so many different things you can look at. But historically, inventories to price have held very, very strong. So if you can figure out where inventories are going, you can figure out where price should go at least. And so coming into this year, we were at a very significant deficit relative to normal, even after that strategic petroleum reserve release. And so that when you're starting at a situation of undersupply, we all suffer from recency bias, meaning, you know, that most recent experience is freshest in our minds. That's the filter through which we see the world. And so the last recession we all know is 2020, COVID, biggest demand shock in history. Prior to that great financial crisis, you know, we were hours away from the financial system ceasing to exist. But recessions prior to that, which I think most mainstream economists, like not the, not the perennial doomsayers, but there's the average economists would say, we're going to experience like a normal kind of slowdown. And in prior recessions like those, what fell was not oil demand. What fell was the rate of growth in oil demand. Mm-hmm. And what's special this year, and we can debate you know, whether it's disappointing or not, is the pace of normalization within China, specifically aviation and road traffic, both of which are very, very uh, strong. What's new this year relative to others is you've got an underpinning of non-OECD growth, which is where total global demand growth has come from over the past 20 years. I think it's, in fact, like 106% of demand growth for the past 20 years has been non-OECD. And so we get access to an army of consultants and analysts and whatnot. 
we reference one from a firm called Energy Aspects. They do that would be globally recognized. And so we use their work and they do model a recession in the United States and Europe and having demand fall, which is very rare. But when you consider demand growth elsewhere in the world, plus China normalization, the end result is we should end this year at at least a five-year low in terms of inventory levels. And that situation of undersupply should persist next year. And that's with the recession, with demand destruction, Mm -hmm. which we very clearly are not seeing. When you look at the demand for flights, when you look at diesel, gasoline demand up 1% to 3% in the United States as of a week week ago, you're yet to see any chinks in the armor of the demand growth story. And yet we're in this situation where I call it price-ascending narrative. The price of oil falls. Everyone has heard about recession, recession, recession for almost a year now. And so you look at price and you say, aha, that must mean the demand is weak. Even though categorically we can show and demonstrate the demand so far this year is running well ahead of people's expectations. Yeah, no, I would agree with you in that in a recession, we could still have a tight market, uh, especially because we get the support from OPEC as well in that, in that scenario. So based on that and based on how the markets reacted to this Saudi cut, do you still buy into this second half 2023 oil rally story? I know Goldman Sachs, you just mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. they cut their oil price today. Yeah. Yeah. So they cut their, their year-end target to only $80. You know, we're trading 67 68 Oh my gosh, like what a horrible environment. Sentiment's awful. Sentiment sucks right now. Like you can measure that in net length in WTI contracts. You can measure it just last week where we had an erroneous article suggesting this, uh, some settlement between the United States and Iran that would allow for exports of up to a million barrels per day. And oil fell, I think, by as much as $4 intraday. And then you reflect on, well, geez, you know, Iranian exports right now are 1.4 million. So that's already, you know, the barrels are already flowing. And that price move from a false story was more than the most powerful person in the world, you know, Saudi energy minister, announcing a voluntary 1 million barrel per day cut effective in a month's time that I think will persist through the end of this year until they get what they want. And you have to understand the intent behind that cut. And so it just shows you how poor sentiment is. The underpinning to my second half thesis is inventory draws. You've got seasonality, you've got China, you've got persistent, strong demand still from the United States, despite these recessionary fears. We're looking for absolutely massive stock draws in July and August. And again, historically, and this relationship is broken down somewhat, but at least historically, as inventories fall, that, that sends a price signal to oil and sends a meaningful upward trajectory. You know, if, if you account for SBRs, that's strategic mm-hmm. petroleum reserves, take those out of current levels, the fundamental price for oil should be in excess of $100 using historical relationships. So you could already argue that oil is mispriced. The SBR release has completely distorted the market's ability to see things as we think we see them. Mm-hmm. And so we, our belief is the, the absolutely massive magnitude of draws should send oil higher mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. Uh, into your end. Yeah. I want to focus in on a couple things that you said. Uh, first of all, a point that you made, which I want our audience to be, I want it to be reinforced, and that is that oil demand is going to grow year over year. The recession and whatever you believe about the recession only affects the rate of growth. So we're only debating how much oil consumption is going to grow. And that speaks to sort of a resilience on the demand side, which you argue is already priced into the market. So I want to shift to the other side of the market, which is supply. 
and key in on this word uh, that you use called sentiment, because in basic financial theory, price embodies the collective wisdom of the entire market. In other words, all the traders in the world were sort of trading this thing, and they they distill the information much as you do, and the collective average of everybody in the market, buyers and sellers, come up with this thing called price. And so what is it about that price that is weaker than it was, it's been softening, that is distortionary or causing poor sentiment, as, as you call it. Yeah. So if it's not the demand side, then what is it about the supply side theory that is weak? And you know, specifically, I want to bring up this issue of, is there more oil leaking into the market from Russia mm -hmm. in these shadowy markets and Iran than we are accounting for? Is that, is that one of the issues? Yeah. It's, it's a very excellent question. And I think it goes back to why I believe and many believe that there is this chasm between the two markets for oil. And so there's the physical market for oil, which we would peg demand now at about 102 million barrels per day. Then there is the paper market or the financial market for oil. So all of the contracts and derivatives and such that are traded on a daily basis. And that's approximately 30 times bigger than the physical market, despite oil being the largest commodity in the world. I'll share some observations from people that I've, I've chatted with in recent days where you know they talk to physical crude traders down in Houston. And this will go against, again, the price currently. But generally speaking, what they tell me is that physical oil traders are incredibly bullish right now, given you know, the, the underlying strong demand, immature draws, etc. Contrast that to accounts and funds and CTAs and algos and such that trade off of different things. You know, again, recessionary expectations, the financialization of oil, you express that negative view by shorting oil, etc. And so that pool of money, unfortunately, is much, much bigger than what the physical traders have access to, especially after a very challenging year this year with some of the more notable crude traders down 40 odd percent. Well, that reduces the amount of money you can put to work and to reduce the number of players on the field, as Mike Trent at RBC describes it. And so you can have these periods of distortion between those two markets. Uh, again, the energy minister talked to this um, just on this past weekend, uh, an interview on, on CNBC was at some conference. And so ultimately, you, you need a shock to narrow the chasm between those two. So you can have weak price short term based upon a false narrative, even though fundamentals remain strong. And ultimately, the, the, the proof will be showed in inventories. To your question on supply, I think supply has disappointed. Very clearly, Russian production, Russian exports have remained much stronger than people thought. You know, ignore the IEA last year saying, oh my gosh, you know, we could lose 3 million barrels per day. And that was the false pretense under which Biden was allowed to release uh, barrels from the SPR. You know, as of March of this year, Russian exports hit an all-time high, even with sanctions, even mm -hmm. with, you know, a boycott from civilized nations, etc., and when you look at some countries in the world, I'll make this up, but you'll get my point, like a Morocco where oil production is magically up, you know, 300%. Well, where are those barrels coming from? It's very clearly Russian barrels that are finding themselves through the market. So you, you have Russia production holding steady up until recently. I recently met with Reistad, uh, an oil and analyst energy aspects, and then Sanford Bernstein, all of whom I think do very good work. And they all believe that Russian net exports have now finally fallen by about five to 700,000 barrels per day just in the last few weeks. At the last OPEC meeting, I, I thought, and this wasn't properly uh, reported, 
but Russia agreed to use third-party estimators in terms of the production, abide by those, and also offer penalty cuts uh, later on. So that we've had to fight that narrative. Plus, I think the U.S. frankly just hasn't been strongly enforcing their sanctions on Iran. You know, Iranian exports hit a recent high last month. So yes, I would say supply is a little higher than what we thought. We've yet to see that in in inventory draws. And so ultimately, it comes down to the improvement in demand, both from seasonality and China and elsewhere, overwhelming stronger supply than what we would have thought. Eric, how much uh, do electric cars, do you think, factor into the sentiment? I mean, when we met last time in 2019, EVs were 3% of new car sales. The IEA expects globally this year more than 18% of new car sales will be electric vehicles. This whole get off fossil fuels, sort of the end of fossil fuels, do you think that is factoring into sentiment as well? It doesn't help. I actually think people are more informed today than they were when we last spoke. I think there's a growing recognition that the extremely aggressive government targets for EV penetration is going to be deferred somewhat, whether it's copper availability or, or funding or lack of, of, of charges or whatnot. And Peter's probably a better person than I to speak to a lot of those particular details, but I, I find people are more informed now than they were three or four years ago. They know mm-hmm. that, you know, gasoline is roughly 27% of total oil demand, where four years ago, the average person probably would have thought it's, you know, 90 to 95%. And you hear about governments wanting to astral drive EVs and banning plastic straws. And it was feeding this narrative that, you know, peak demand was right around the corner, which I, I think most people now are much, much more informed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a greater awareness that the gasoline demand side of it is not just looking at how many EVs are being sold and the penetration rate. It's much more a function of how many combustion engine vehicles are being taken off the market, which is a lot slower than the EV sales growth. So you got to look at both sides. Okay, fine, EVs are growing, but how many people are actually ditching their combustion vehicles around the world? That's a whole other uh, discussion that Jackie, you and I have had and we'll probably have many times more, but let's sort of switch to the sentiment of equities, there's a sentiment of oil price and natural gas price, but let's look at the sentiment of the of the of the equities themselves. Are they still trading cheaply? And what are the sort of the institutional investors thinking about cash yields, etc.? So let's start with sentiment. So I, I can measure that in a few ways. I can measure it through inflows versus outflows. Just the the collective emotion and sentiment. Uh, I've, I've done a ton of marketing this year, you know, across the country, back and forth, meeting with advisors all across the country. And I, I would say people are, are optimistic, but they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. It has been like my, my fund is probably down roughly 8% on the year. And it feels like I'm down like 50 because the volatility has just been just an absolute brutal killer where you can have days like today where you're down three or $4. And seemingly, you know, other than a Goldman downgrade where, you know, it's only $80 by the end of this year, like you really can't explain it. And so I think that volatility is slowly eroding people's conviction, where you're in a state now where you, you really have to believe it to see it. Like we have to see Russian exports truly fall. We, we have to see the inventory builds. We have to see demand hold in, etc. And so, yeah, I would say sentiment today is, is, is challenged. From a valuation perspective, what, what keeps us very, very excited about the space are two things. Valuations combined with a catalyst to drive every rating. And so of, of my holdings, I would estimate they're discounting an oil price of about $55 to $58 oil uh, long-term. 
Uh, you can measure it from free cash flow yields, like at the current oil price. We have the sector trading at about 11% free cash flow yield next year, or the ability to return 11% in the form of buybacks and dividends. So that's kind of our starting case. And when I talk about catalysts, it's the commitment of the sector to maintain a low to no growth uh, strategy to allow them to maximize free cash flow and use that to use free cash flow in very, very meaningful buybacks. You know, our pitch to boards has been, we do not need a generalist investor to care ever again about this sector and still have stocks go up meaningfully by, and from current levels, we're talking well in excess of 100%, we believe. So long as boards say, if you don't see the value in our stock, we do. And we'll use every nickel of free cash flow to buy back from you. Because we have examples where, hmm. you know, let's say at $80 oil, companies could privatize themselves at a free cash flow with four years of, of free cash. And I'm getting 30 years of reserves, production, cash flow, free cash flow, dividends for free. So that's that's what's still exciting to me, despite the volatility in days like today, where you know, you've just got to bear the, uh, you know, the, the mental anguish, believing in much stronger days in the coming weeks and months. So Eric, uh, we had talked in 2019 about the fact not a lot of institutional investors were in the space at some, I think you had said that some days, you know, just a few people like yourself and maybe one other buying stocks yeah. Yeah, for Canadian oil yeah. and gas. But lots has changed. Uh, as you say, the yields are, are really good now. They've proven over the last few years, at least the last year, that these companies can provide yields. I think the outlook for the long-term outlook for oil and gas, a lot of people do sort of look at this and say, hey, this looks like underinvestment. So much more compelling fundamentals. Have you seen more institutional investors or even generalist investors come back in the space? I mean, the multiples don't really reflect too much more interest, but... A- yeah. So I'll, I'll use myself as a proxy. So we typically have only been a retail fund. We had our first institution come on board last year. We have several prospects currently, and mainly from the U.S., which was surprising to us. Not yet from Europe. I still think the uh, concerns around ESG and divestments and you know tar sands and all, all of that nonsense is preventing uh, European funds flow f- for now. But I do think institutional interest is there and increasing. But again, going back to we can't have the volatility as we have now. You you can't as an institution deploy fall fifteen percent in a month off of sentiment. So I just think we need to baseline and stabilize. There's there's a lot of interest, but that is not yet translating into fund fund flow because of the volatility in the oil price. Mm-hmm. In your travels and speaking with oil and gas companies, okay, we've spoken about yields and buybacks and dividends, but historically, oil and gas companies have to put the money back in the ground to maintain production. So what is the directive from investors to companies here in Canada and also to prolific places like the Permian in the US? Yeah, so again, we would be one of the larger investors in, in Canada. And the very polite but forceful commentary that we have with our company CEOs and boards is, Energy investors need to be paid for the misery of the worst bear market in history over the past 10 years. And we're going to get rewarded for that through meaningful buybacks, dividends, but my, our preference is buybacks, to drive the re-rating in valuations from still current lows. So spend what you need to do to keep production flat. Get your balance sheet to where you need to get it, whether it's a half a turn of debt at 45, whether it's debt-free. Every board has their own comfort levels, depending on what form of PTSD they're still suffering from. But when you get there, then it's our turn to get paid. 
and we expect, in fact, we demand, that seems a little strong, but you know what I mean, 75% at a minimum of free cash flow to go back into the form of, of buybacks. And are companies able to do that? Absolutely. So I think it is a new religion in the sector where there is an understanding that it, it must drive the re-rating so long as to a company, everybody follows that, that philosophy. I can only think of one company that, that doesn't agree. So from mm-hmm. the smallest companies to the largest, everyone, generally speaking, is pledged at the, at the lower end 50%. But most companies, I would say it's 75 to 100% of free cash flow. So when we look at the large cap Canadian names, we have most of them. And this depends on oil price. We're modeling about 80 bucks, I think, for the, the rest of this year. So at $80 oil, most companies in Canada will hit their final leverage metric by the end of this year and inflect to 100% of free cash flow, which to me is incredibly exciting mm-hmm. because our thesis is the sector is going to re-rate to a 10% dividend yield, which is going to be one day the same as free cash flow yield. And at 70, you know, you're probably looking at 13, 14% free cash flow yield. At 80, it's close to 19 to 20% now. And so you don't have to believe in $150 royal to see very meaningful upside in these stocks. Just believe in 80. And I think we're going meaningfully higher than that. But just believe in 80. If the sector is at a 20% free cash yield, and I think it's going to re-rate to 10, well, that's a doubling in the average energy mm-hmm. stock. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of sort of the financial world's views and so on from a societal perspective. It's a little bit unsettling that Western oil and gas companies in the free market are going to keep their production flat at best, which tells me that the state-owned oil companies and the Russians and others are just going to take market share in an environment where uh, basically the Western alliance is in a proxy war with the Russians. But that's a whole other issue and discussion, Jackie, that we can have on energy security. But, but so, on, and Peter... On- Peter, on that note, I don't want to interrupt, but I just, a quote came to mind when you said that. And it was from a meeting with the U.S. shale company a few months ago. And he said, Eric, my job is not to balance the oil market. My job is to make my investors money. Yeah. And so it's just such, it's, it's such a profound change in, in mindset today versus four or five years ago. And, and it, it's just that there are so many things clashing right now with the geopolitics of the world. It's something we haven't had to deal with for a arguably a dozen, some would argue 30 years, and that uh, this has potential other consequences that could lead to even more bullish markets down the road. But, you know, that's a f- debate for further uh, further discussion. I, I just want, but on this theme of sort of foreign interests versus Western interests and specifically Canadian interests, if the stocks are as cheap as you're saying, why are we not seeing foreign takeover bids here as we have seen in the past? So let's, we'll talk about foreign and then we'll talk about domestic. So domestic typically would be PE funds. Mm-hmm. And my, my impression is there's for every dollar going out at life of, you know, life of fund, uh, you know, after seven years, there's about 10 to 15 cents coming in. And so there's just a lack of the, the, the deep pockets that once were are no longer as the interest level remains uh, subdued. Mm-hmm. I think Canada, we, we still fight the impression of, you know, the tar sands, dirty oil, highest emissions, yada, yada. And that's keeping, if there was interest from foreign oil companies, that's keeping them at bay, especially the ESG considerations where, 
you know, you reflect on the BPs and, and the shells, and I guess shells pivoted. They were they were going to allow their production to fall by two percent per annum. Now it's going to be flat. You know, BP was going to be letting it fall forty percent. Now it's only twenty four percent. But I just I don't don't think the focus is on inventory replenishment. It's still on trying to assuage people's demands of dividend increases, debt pay down, share buybacks, freeing up free cash to invest in low to no margin renewables and alternatives, et cetera. I just don't think we're there because of either it's policy uncertainty from windfall taxes, the drive of governments to impact oil demand through EV adoption, banning plastic straws, et cetera, and all of these different things, which erodes people's conviction in the long-term outlook for oil, where it's just too risky. Like if you're a board today, you can't possibly sanction a new project. There's just way too much uncertainty, whether it's on price, whether it's on demand, and so I just, as great as the thesis is, where I can get decades worth of free cash flow for free, mm. I think there are too many obstacles for others to see necessarily what we see, which is why, again, it's just so critical for companies to use their free cash flow and buy back as much stock as they possibly can. Well, Eric, you mentioned that Canadian stocks have an overhang. You talked about the DSG, the oil sands, but there are other policy overhangs here as well, such as the cap on oil and gas emissions, the liberal government and, and their plans to reduce emissions generally. Does that factor in also, do you think, in terms of companies not wanting to come into Canada? I mean, and does it factor into why our stocks are cheaper? Like the same company in the U.S. is, is valued higher than in Canada. Yeah, I, I think it does. And we have to be honest on that. Our companies trade due to a political risk discount of roughly half a turn to a full, full to multiple relative to U.S. peers. And so I think anything the current federal government can do to assuage those Mm -hmm. concerns, whether it's emissions cap, production cap, I think pathways doing anything they need to do on the federal and provincial level to make people believe the pathways is going forward will be monumental in increasing investor interest in the Canadian oil sands, which could lead to a meaningful re-rate. To be able to buy, again, I keep going back to this theme, but it's just it still boggles my mind, to be able to buy decades worth of free cash flow for nothing, where U.S. shale companies have inventory problems, both in terms of depth of inventory and quality of inventory, and you contrast that mm-hmm. to Canadian companies where we do not, and yet we're trading cheap, cheaper than those companies, it makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, do, I do think the discount being placed due to current federal government policies I think that's a a reasonable thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. So just for clarification then, Eric, uh, we're going to have to wrap up here. The financial jargon of half turn to full turn on the multiple. So what you're saying is that U.S. companies are valued at what? I'm just tossing a number four times their annual cash flow. Is that roughly about right? So if you're a U.S. company with 10 years of state flight inventory, you're you're trading at five and a half to six times. If you're a Canadian company with 30 to 40 years of state flight inventory, you're trading at four to, to five. So there's there's a huge discount, which is difficult to explain. Yeah, that, that discount is important. And the importance of policy uncertainty being rectified cannot be understated because if companies are going to be able to achieve decarbonization goals and targets, they have to be able to access capital markets, including things like debt. And if their valuations are hampered, it's much more difficult to do to get investor positive sentiment around such investments. So anyway, there's so much more we can talk about. 
Eric Nettle, Senior Portfolio Manager, Nine Point Partners LP. We're going to put all the links up, but Eric, thanks so much for joining us again. It's always a, a delight to have you to give us the behind the scenes views on what's going on in the markets. It's always uh, a lot of fun to be with you. Thank you. And thank you. And thanks to our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.